The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. Tonight, we'll be interviewing Matt Brady, a high school science teacher turned writer and author of The Science and Rick of Morty. Join us as Matt discusses cockroach remote control, simulation theory, divergent evolutionary timelines, and more. It's Eye on the Triangle, everybody. Let's do this. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC. 88.1, I on the Triangle, and I'm here with Matt Brady, the new author of The Science of Rick and Morty. Mr. Brady, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Awesome. So you have written a book here to help out your students in the classroom and to help out people in the nation at large with understanding various elements of, of science and science fiction through the structure of Rick and Morty. Where'd you get this idea? Well, I have to credit my editor. The book was actually published in the UK first. And um, it so happens that I'm a science teacher, and my wife and I run a website called thescienceof.org, where we kind of do what we do in our classrooms. We use pop culture to get people interested in science. And on that website, I had written a couple articles about Rick and Morty and the science behind some of the wilder things on Rick and Morty. I think I had written two, one about Pickle Rick, where Rick was able to, well, Rick was a pickle, and he was able to hijack cockroaches, use their body parts to build himself a suit, and one about the small earth that they found, Dwarf Terrace 37, or some number in there, and the gravity uh, that would be on such a small planet. And so I, I wrote those articles and published them on the website and just had fun writing them. And a little while later, I got an email saying, I really like these articles. I really like how they were written and what you were trying to do here with them. Would you be interested in writing a book about the science of Rick and Morty? And one thing led to another. I figured out this guy was serious about it. And yeah, it all fell together like that. It's, I guess it's one of those stories of, yes, you too can be discovered on the internet. <laughs> I'm, I'm like the science writer version of, of Bieber, I guess. The science writer version of Bieber. I'm surprised it's not on the back of the cover. <laughs> oh, please, no, no. <laughs> and by the way, you've written so much in here. We have alien life, dark matter, black holes, body hacking, evolution, ecology. You've packed so much from this show and, and so much from actual science into this book. Is there any particular chapter that you'd like to paraphrase or mention? The one, well, there are, there are a couple ones that uh, I'll, I'll use here and there. The one that I really like is about hijacking cockroach brains, as Rick did in Pickle Rick. That's actually not exactly the way it was shown, but you can actually hijack a cockroach brain. As I explain in the book, and i, I got to give a shout-out to these guys that have a company in, in Michigan called Backyard Brains, 
um, they will sell you a little kit that you can put this tiny little backpack on the back of a cockroach, glue it on there, snip off the cockroach's antennas, and then you push these electrodes down in the antenna stumps. And that backpack is connected to an app on your phone. And through that app, you can give a stimulus to one antenna stub or the other through those electrodes. And the cockroach's brain will think, oh, I've hit something. That's what the antennas do. And it will turn and go the other way. So you can literally drive a cockroach with an app on your phone. And I tell this to people, and usually, and probably you too, have the reaction of, oh, that's, that's horrifying. Oh, not at all. <laughs> well, maybe it's not. Well, but the thing is, also with that, is these guys aren't, aren't doing this just for a lark, and the roboticists who are studying this stuff aren't doing it just because it's kind of weird and cool. It gets them date. I tell my students that you probably wouldn't mind seeing a remote-controlled cockroach come in to the wreckage of a building that just collapsed on top of you, and it has a little camera mounted on that backpack as well, and the hunt for survivors is still going on, and now this little remote-controlled cockroach has found you. So there is a lot of real science behind a lot of the stuff that Rick and Morty just kind of uses for a laugh or, or uses for a plot device. And a lot of people sometimes forget this could be the intermediary in a new technology. What is a backpack on a cybernetic cockroach today could be a entirely fully robotic drone that uses a biomimicry to kind of move and act like a cockroach would. Sure, sure. And if you if you do a Google, Google hunt, you'll find plenty of companies or companies or research arms that are making these cockroach robots or robots the size of cockroaches and using biomimicry of copying the ideas that nature put into the cockroach and pretty much at the same time making them just about invulnerable and able to squeeze their way into any small passageway or crack between two, two surfaces. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's using what nature already has for things that we could produce. I was just thinking of when you are talking about this how there is a small RC car that was developed by a robotics laboratory and just the addition of a tail kind of at the same angle you would see in a velociraptor in say Jurassic Park that enabled it to do a lot more effective jumps a lot more uh, effective acrobatics and its landings were were not nearly as shaky yeah what was all the research in this how did you put this book together there's definitely more here than you can just glean in an episode of Rick and Morty how'd you go deeper Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a science teacher. I teach chemistry and physics. So I had, you know, a solid footing on especially the physics side of things well, and the chemistry as well. But I've always been a science nerd. So I was, I was in a good place to start digging. And once the book came together and we figured out what topics we were going to cover and how we were going to cover them, I just started going into the literature, into both the popular science press and then into journal articles as well. And then here and there, I would contact experts in the field, and those were always wonderful calls to make of, hey, have you heard about this show called Rick and Morty? Yeah, it's kind of weird, but they use some science that you study. Would you be up for talking about it? And everyone I talked to was just so gracious. And most of them were familiar with the show. I'm sure if you did the audience research, you'd see that there's a, a, a good following in the science community. Um, but 
folks like, you know, renowned evolutionary biologists and, and cosmologists and experts on dark matter and cloning and just everybody was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's let's talk about that. Let's let's talk science about kind of what they did in that show. So it was kind of a, a neat experience in that sense to to dig into stuff and find so many people just really, really willing to talk about this. How did you feel typing your first email to a specialist in the field with this Rick and Morty lead-in? Kind of uh, the worst thing he could say was no. It was a guy, I believe it was Jonathan Losos. He had just published a book on evolutionary biology. I had heard one of his graduate students talking about him on a different podcast. And I thought, you know, what he's talking about is really what Rick and Morty is about and this evolution and how could you have evolution to lead to the same outcome on multiple Earths. And there was a biologist, an evolutionary biologist named Stephen Jay Gould, who said evolution is just random chance, largely, and variation, and just could never happen the same way twice. And he had a quote saying that if you rewound the tape of Earth's history and let it play again, things wouldn't have ended up the same way, and it wouldn't have ended up with humans on top or anything remotely like the Earth that we have now. And that's more of a, a thought question than an actual an argument question. But I took that as my foundation and went to my evolutionary biologist and said, okay, so let's take what Stephen Jay Gould said and apply it to an infinite number of Earths. How does that work that you can evolve and end up in the same place so many different times or so similar that the only difference is, well, this Rick and Morty have gills and this Rick and Morty don't. So I think a lot of them took it as just a fun time to kind of think about some things and expand and, and just speculate on some weird stuff that deep down every scientist wants to speculate on some weird stuff. Most people in the sciences often get their start, and you mentioned this in your introduction, of course, in watching Star Trek and watching uh, all, these, all these popular shows on TV and then saying, well, how can I, if not be a part of what is a fictional universe, how can I try to take our level of understanding of the universe to that point or maybe even prove that, that universe incorrect? Exactly, exactly. And like you said, yeah, I mentioned that and I feel very, very strongly about the book and, and teaching my students of we imagine the future and we create the future that we imagined. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you on a cell phone, which is a communicator and a tricorder, and a supercomputer all rolled into one. And NASA is filled with, well, right now, older engineers who were inspired by Star Trek, the original series, and some younger ones who were inspired by Star Trek, the next generation. And if you look at kind of big moment science fiction, you realize we have so many devices and so many pieces of our now came from that science fiction portrayal in the past. And I'm, I'm hoping that Rick and Morty will find that audience or has found that audience, that someone has just kind of taken that bone of multiple universes and is just not letting it go. And they want to figure out how. And scientifically, you know, cosmologically speaking, we're pretty close to figuring out, yes or no, multiple universes do exist. And, and the, the, the tip is starting to lean towards yeah, there, there probably are multiple universes in one form or another. And boy, if, if Rick and Morty creates a cosmologist because they wanted to find out more about multiple universes like they saw in Rick and Morty, that's, that's a feather in the cap to that show. 
Certainly. Can you imagine them bringing that up when they're being interviewed further down the line? Proving or disproving string theory? I could only hope that would be wonderful. I think, and I said in the book, of just when they're up there receiving some prize and, and one of the questions they get is, what inspired you to go down this route of research? And this will be, you know, 20, 30 years in the future. And they just say, well, have you ever heard about this old show called Rick and Morty? It was kind of weird, but... And then just tell their story. To, to bring things back to your book and back to that whole tape rewind concept that you mentioned, the idea of changing one small thing in, in history and then fast forwarding into a completely alternate branch of time. You paint a wonderful image of the Yucatan impact and how were it not for the location of the asteroid that struck the Earth, who knows what creature would currently walk it? Who knows who would be talking during this interview? Who knows what we would be consuming in media and culture, where our technology would even be. Exactly. And that's, that was Troodon, right? That, that there's a chance that had that asteroid not hit where it hit in this one spot with oil-rich sediment, which threw up this cloud and, and threw all this, this debris into the upper atmosphere, which then rained down, had it missed. There's no argument that you can really strongly make that says humans would be on top. The, the idea is that, you know, there was this dinosaur named a Troodon that could have been a few million years later walking upright or at least running around in herds. With the right evolutionary pressures, of course. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, there's no, as much as you want to, you know, think, oh, the, the earth changed and all the dinosaurs that I know as new from a kid that I love died. That asteroid did us a lot of favors, and it really helped us out because you can, again, you can make a strong argument that without that asteroid, we wouldn't be here. And so, yeah, that, I, I would argue that on some multiple Earth somewhere, that asteroid didn't hit. And there is a dinosaur Rick and Morty that probably show up in the Citadel of Ricks. Now the real trick is keeping the next asteroid from knocking us off the top of the heap. That would be great, and I'd have much more confidence if we had an actual program to actually look out in space and keep an eye on, uh, on stuff that's coming our way, rather than just a loose group of people that do it almost as a hobby. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Actually, uh, a lot of theories point to Jupiter being our big brother in the solar system, kind of soaking asteroid and meteor impacts and keeping Earth safe. Right, our vacuum cleaner in the sky. But it's, it's not going to be everywhere. It's not going to be everywhere all the time and catch everything that we need it to catch. So all you're going to have is one myth, and it's already had one myth. Have you brought this book to the classroom at all? Or did a lot of what you've done in the classroom inform the structure of this book? Well, I, I teach at a public school. So it's, it's a delicate issue to bring something like Rick and Morty, which is a, a hard R animated series um, in. And so it, it kind of got out that I was writing this. I would maybe walk by my students when we had a moment of free time or something, and they would be arguing about an episode, or and I'd walk by and kind of like give my two cents and just keep going. And I know my students would look at me like, what? How does he know about that? I haven't really used it in class, and it's not exactly matched up to any any specific curriculum i will pull pull definitely pull out some examples here and there but largely it's a it's a book that's going to reach hopefully people more casual readers rather than turn into a a textbook to be used in any specific class 
And that was kind of our goal, writing it all together, my editor and myself. We, we wanted to write a science book first rather than an episode guide. And here was the science in this episode. And hey, remember this episode? Here was the science. It's here's the science. And there was an example kind of like this. And here's how it could work out. I think we kind of we hit that, that you'll come away from reading this with a better understanding and hopefully a better appreciation of the science that's kind of behind the, the scenes of Rick and Morty and sometimes right up front. But as for school, I like my job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold back a little bit. I'm certainly going to tell my students when it comes out and hopefully, you know, some of them will pick it up and I might, you know, have one brought in that I need to autograph or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they can, they can know I wrote a book about it, but we won't talk about the actual cartoon that it came from that much. We'll just, we'll stick to the science. Uh, you do primarily focus on the science of this, but also in your writing, especially in your parentheticals, you flirt with the raunchiness of, of Rick and Morty, with the nihilism, with the irreverence, with the walls craziness of the series. And it definitely like carries your work to make it a lot more readable. It reminds me a lot of a book I used to read when I was a lot younger, and that was The Physics of Superheroes. And I forget the author right now. <laughs> oh, do you know of it? James Cacalios. Ah, oh, thank you so much. And I've got a copy right here in my and room. <laughs> I'm awful at math myself. Math is not my strongest subject. But by putting mathematical terminologies into semi-real interpretations of the feats of these superheroes, I was able to understand things like uh, quantum entanglement or the idea that acceleration raises your chances of going through an object without actually interfering with it, kind of interlacing through it, or what Superman's actual physical feats really can do. And so by, I don't know if grounding is the word, at least connecting your work to Rick and Morty, you, you get across some wonderful things here. Cloning, evolution, you do this, this great exploration of, uh, of the evolutionary pressures of Summer's fantasy land and what caused all the creatures there to become what they are. It was exploration in and of itself that you knew what Rick created, and you knew what he had in mind was this totally safe place with these totally, you know, basically stuffed animal-level creatures for Summer to play with, and nothing could hurt her. And yet, 20 years later, they go back, and it's, it's crazy, and there are vicious animals out there. And so something happened. And, you know, this is an example of probably why this should not be used in a high school biology class. I point to that something that happened was Tommy, who got left behind and had a really interesting relationship with the creatures that were in Fruppy Land. And he was the evolutionary pressure. And the introduction of his genetic material, uh, um, that started Fruppy Land evolving. And as I mentioned in the book, it must have evolved quickly. There are many generations because, as we saw in the show, the generational time or the gestation period for the animals was super fast. And so many, many generations have gone by. Hundreds or thousands of generations have gone by since summer was there last, which I use as an explanation of, well, when you have this much time going by and this much change happening, then, yeah, you're going to get who knows what, which is why in this wonderful world that Rick created for his young daughter, you have this vicious pterodactyl-like creature that rips Rick's arm off. He never created that, but given enough time, enough genetic drift and change and variation and pressure, 
yeah, you'd have that. And probably those things, as I mentioned too, probably those things are interbreeding now. And you've got all kinds of stuff. That would be, you know, I would, I would put down my pen and pick up all my lab tools and I would love to go study Fruity Land and try to figure out what happened there if it was a real place. But I like the jab you actually leave towards Tommy calling him a coward for refusing to interact with the larger pterodactyl creatures. <laughs> that, that put a smile on my face, definitely. If, if those creatures, if his offspring got mean, I'm sure he had no desire to go back to him. Because you remember when, when Beth came in there, kicked the door in, his first reaction was to hide behind his little throne. So yeah, he, was, he wasn't going to go uh, make make Fruity Land babies with anything that uh, could scratch, bite, or kill him. Definitely. So, to ask you a personal question, what was the hardest part of writing this book? I've done a little bit of writing myself, and I know that it can be a real challenge week to week. For anybody trying to write a work like this, how do you get through those difficult periods? Go to the cliche, it's a marathon. Just gotta hunker down and go. And even the days that you don't, you just gotta keep plugging. There were many points on this that I kind of sat down and did the, I got to put something on this, on this screen. Otherwise, you know, I'm just going to two days off, turn into four days off, turns into six days off and you don't come back, but it's just right. You do the work, you hunker down and say, I'm going to write 200, 500, 700 words today. I, I have to, some of them will be good. Some of them will be crap, but you just have to keep going. Luckily for me on this, I didn't write it sequentially. So I was able to kind of pick and choose on what I was going to write. I, I didn't like I didn't front load it and write all the stuff that I really dug first because I knew that it would get it would get to be a long process, and so I need to leave some, uh, some cookies for me down the road. That oh, I'll, I'll write the cockroach brains after this chapter, which is going to be a slog, and that that worked pretty well. Um, although there there is one one chapter that. Um, I can tell was uh, I was kind of I was kind of out of gas, and I'm not going to tell you which one it was. My editor doesn't agree with me, but I can read it and go, "Wow, whew, I was just done. I was done at that point." Um, but my, my editor actually really, really liked that chapter. So yeah, we disagree on that one. Maybe but it's just doing the work. Maybe readers of your book can find that chapter and decide for themselves. <laughs> yeah, maybe they can. I'm certainly not going to tell them. Oh no, I I totally respect that. And on the subject of editing, was there any parts that you cut for time or for space or for the sake of brevity that you really liked but couldn't put there? And do you want to talk about them here? Actually, there really weren't. My publisher, Blink Media, my publisher in, in the UK, was really, really welcoming to just about anything I wanted to put in there. Um, we stopped at about 100,000 words, and that was kind of, we looked back and said, yeah, that's, that's everything. That's everything we wanted to get in there. There were maybe here or there a couple tangents that I started and just cut off because it really wasn't, the more I wrote, the farther it got away from Rick and Morty and the tougher sell it was on why am I even talking about this? And so if I couldn't put a Rick and Morty reference in it, or if I wasn't, you know, a paragraph away from some plot point or some device, I made sure it didn't, it didn't show up in there. Now, here and there, I did need to kind of go into the science a bit and do, okay, classes in session, here we go, A, B, C, D, E, then this, 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 then, hey, do this problem. But all those, I always kept the eye on, does it serve a Rick and Morty reference, something that happened in the story? But I think, I think we picked, 
picked all the science clean that we could find in the series, in the three seasons so far, hopefully. There were a few things I mentioned, uh, I think, in the technology and inventions, just that, you know, they were kind of silly, but I did mention them anyway and just say, yeah, this, this, this stuff, most of the things that uh, Beth asked Rick to invent um, for her when she was a little girl, a lot of that stuff, some of it's weirdly close when you think of like our smart devices, um, but some of it's just was there for the laugh. I noticed in your table of contents, you didn't bring up uh, artificial intelligence too much. Any reason why? That was a tough call on finding it in the series. It's kind of like, you know, anything else in that, if I look at the table of contents, anything else, I can go right to it and say, oh, of course, oh, dark matter. Well, yeah, how do you make concentrated dark matter? Uh, memory dreams and brain playground, and you're, you know, you're falling through different dreams like Inception. Artificial intelligence, though, there was maybe a little bit, but it didn't really feature heavily. What about the decision-making tree of the car when it's defending summer? Okay, there, there is. Yes, there is that. But like, like you were kind of saying, some things had to, had to stay, some things had to go. And now that you mentioned that, boy, I really wish I would have put that in there. What was I more focused on in that one? That was, that was the microverse. So I was more focused on uh, the efficiency of the microverse. And, oh, my God, Rick's a monster, because if you can create a whole universe small like that, why are you enslaving a planet when you can just tap the sun that that planet orbits and get all the energy that you need? That was something else that I kind of discovered in, in a lot of these things. It's, you know, oh, my God, Rick's a monster. He's a monster for some of the things that he, that he does. And they, you don't go down those roads in the stories. But it's just one of those things, you know, that we find out in our lives of if we make this piece of technology, well, yes, it's going to be cool. It will, it will tell me what I want to buy next based on my history of the other things I've bought. But then also that same technology can be used to tell the authorities where I'm going to be so they can grab me on some weird charge that they made up in their head. Yeah, and so, so Rick, you know, that's, that's kind of one of the other things I like doing in the book is, well, let's look at this. If, if he could do this, then holy crap, there's, there, there's kind of like some, some other directions that you don't want to go down or think about. But, but also at the same time, with, I kind of mentioned in there too, but if, you know, if Rick knows everything, which is kind of what the series leans towards, that he, you know, I don't want to say that he's the god of that universe. He says it enough himself. But if he knows everything, then where's the joy in his life? Where's the excitement? Where's the fun? Where's the creativity or the spontaneity? And I think that kind of comes out in his character as well, that he's, he's a curmudgeon at best and a nihilist at worst, and, you know, hand-in-hand hand with being suicidal from occasion to occasion. I kind of, you know, by looking at that big picture of all his discoveries, all his technology, and everything that he's learned, Morty is his redemption. Morty is his, you know, his rock, his thing that, that keeps him sane and keeps him alive and keeps him living from day to day which I think is a kind of human touch to the whole series that uh, I would bet that the creators did put into the series just down at the heart level that all the jokes and all the crazy science fiction are supposed to keep you away from. But when you think about it, it is a, it is a very sweet story, even though Rick may be a monster.
as far as those quandaries go, in your authorial opinion, are we living in a simulation? <laughs> that's that, that's like one of those secret tricks as a teacher. I would like I like to pull out of my pocket every now and then and just give to my students and make them think about it. Because if you if you kind of oh well it's it's I tell my students okay okay we're gonna have a we're gonna have a stoner thought now. And they're like what? Like I'm gonna put something in your head that you're just gonna lean back right now, look at the ceiling and go, whoa. Because yeah, that's yeah the simulation theory. That's that's my favorite one to play with. That's either we're going to become so advanced that we can create games or simulations that are like reality, or we're not, we're going to kill ourselves before we do it. But if you say, if you take the optimistic route out of that and say, no, we're not going to kill ourselves before we reach this level of, of technology mm -hmm. that we can create simulations. I, I love that. If you take that optimistic route, mm -hmm. then basically you're saying, okay, we're probably in a simulation because if we're going to create that, then we're going to make it. And as I, I tell my students, I said, you know, we have to wait, what, I think the next, the next Grand Theft Auto is coming out in 2020, 2022, or something like that. And I tell them, I think about the difference between Grand Theft Auto V and Red Dead Redemption 2 in the story, the graphics, the world. How much more advanced is Grand Theft Auto VI going to be? And you're going to lose your minds if you say, if Rockstar says, hey, by the way, it's VR. You're going to lose your minds. And at that point, how many years are we away from making a simulation that interacts with everything? Or a few. The technology isn't quite there yet. But, yeah, if we make them, there's a good, good chance we're in one. If we survive long enough to make them, we're probably in one. And what, what hurts is we're, not the, we're probably not the main simulation. We're not the whoever's living in the future made this world that we're living in where whoever's living in the future started a simulation and that simulation started a simulation and that simulation started a simulation and that simulation started a simulation and we're, you know, many, many leaves away from the, the trunk of that tree, which kind of keeps you humble if you, if you go all into that. <laughs> we're not so special after all. Who is it? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I believe, says that we could just be something that an alien a hyper-intelligent alien kid is playing while he's waiting for dinner. <laughs> Just another game of civilization, you might say. Yep, exactly, exactly. The book, when it comes out October 1st, we are having a launch event in, uh, in downtown Winston-Salem in the Innovation Quarter area of town, the newly remodeled area that has Wake Downtown and Biotech Place and Inmar and kind of our high-tech area that we'll be having a launch party on October 1st at the Bailey Power Plant Crane Room, and that's free and open to the public, 7 to 9, if anybody's in the area and wants to stop by. Um, I'm planning to do, I think I might do the reading, a reading of the Cockroach Brain chapter, um, but we'll have hopefully a couple other displays out, and uh, I'll be signing all the books that, that show up. Say some listener wants to pick up your book, where would they find it? It is already out there on Amazon for pre-order, and then come October 1st, Amazon will ship it right to you, but it should be in bookstores everywhere um, starting October 1st. Also, just found out recently that there will be an audiobook version coming. I'm not exactly sure of the date on that, but uh, hopefully that'll be coming through, I believe, Audible pretty soon. Who'd you get for the voice? I 
forget the name. Um, it's a guy, I think he did Encyclopedia of the Supernatural or something. He, they sent me a sample, and I, I was going to be kind of skeptical, and then I heard, I heard the sample. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. that guy's good. That guy's very good. That must have been a wonderful evening. It'll be so weird to hear somebody reading my words when, God, you know, sometimes I can't even bear to read my words. Well, thanks so much. It has been a pleasure to talk about the science of Rick and Morty. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC, 88.1, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm signing off. I think that about does it, everybody. I had a great time putting this one together. I'm hoping you got a kick out of it, too. It's always fun to look at normal things at oblique angles, yeah? Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye in the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, license to Creative Commons, attribution, not commercial through one license. Stay tuned for your usual program of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.